In 2007, Paul DeVoe committed one murder after another with no end in sight. It was all hands on deck for the U.S. Marshal's Lone Star Fugitive Task Force and the Travis County Sheriff's Office to track him down before he claimed his sixth victim. It only took a jury three and a half hours, and now Paul DeVoe sits on death row in Huntsville, Texas, having been found guilty of multiple murders back in 2007 after a vicious and violent rampage. Today, we have those who helped bring him to justice. I'm Chris Gotzik, and this is Chasing Evil. Welcome, everyone. I heard about the Paul DeVoe case when I was in Austin a few weeks ago, and for all the wrong reasons, he earned himself an episode. Otherwise, I had a nice time in Austin. I thought I had some of the best barbecue I've ever had. But as my first guest informed me, uh, I was mistaken. I'd like to bring into the podcast Hector Gomez, who was a supervisory deputy with the United States Marshal Service, now retired, and a barbecue aficionado. Greetings. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Uh, yeah, barbecue aficionado. Yeah, I was born and raised in a in a small town just south of Austin, uh, known for its barbecue, certainly has been uh, been on TV a lot nationally on uh, illustrated. What's the name? What's the name of it? Well, it's Lockhart, Texas. It's Lockhart, Texas. Craig Smith, who at the time was in the Travis County Sheriff's Department as a homicide detective. Welcome, Craig. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. And do you agree, Lockhart, Texas, is the only place that one can go for barbecue? I'm not going to say it's the only place, but. Uh, I have to agree with Hector. There's uh, some really good stuff. Okay. A consensus is building. Ben Wright, who at the time was with the Travis County Sheriff's Department and a task force officer with the Lone Star Fugitive Task Force uh, run by the U.S. Marshals. Welcome. If you have anything that you'd like to add about barbecue, I certainly don't want to leave you out. (laughs) I'll eat barbecue. If, If we need to have a taste contest, I'm happy to join. Okay. All right. Very good. And uh, Darren Sarton, a retired U.S. Marshal Supervisor with the Lone Star Fugitive Task Force. Welcome, Darren. Good morning. I will I will agree with Hector, but I live out kind of southwest of Austin. There's a place called the Salt Lake where it'll it'll rival some places. But the, the good thing about the Salt Lake is you can bring your own cooler and wait for your barbecue to be served. So that that's my vote. Oh, OK. Oh, very good. And we'll see if uh, Kevin Rabowski, a retired Austin PD detective, also assigned to the Lone Star Fugitive Task Force. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. As for the barbecue, I don't eat the barbecue. I love to cook it, and I'll put my barbecue up against any of these places. Really? Okay. (laughs) All right. I like it. I like the confidence. (laughs) Well, now I I like the confidence, and you've also, like, kind of screwed yourself a little bit because next time I come down, we'll all come over to your house. So. I hope well, you know what? Come on over. I got a right. beer and a lot of barbecue. <laughs> I, I will have to add about Kevin's barbecue. It's good, but you never know when he goes hunting in the woods. You don't know what he's cooking. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 an issue. I'm not a huge fan of mystery meat. I'll, I'll be honest with you. All right. We've talked about what Texans like to talk about. Now we're going to talk about Paul DeVoe and when he came onto your radar. All right, Ben, why don't you start us off and tell us how DeVoe came to your attention? 
Back in August 25th of 2007, I received a phone call from a Texas Ranger who was working a homicide in the Marble Falls area in which the suspect was Paul DeVoe. And he informed me that Paul DeVoe had uh, had an altercation with an ex-girlfriend um, in the Lano area. And then leaving that altercation, uh, he had gone to a bar in the Marble Falls area. Uh, trying to think what the name of the bar was. O'Neill's Tavern. O'Neill's Tavern. Look at you with the notes. Well, yeah, I need notes and glasses. It's kind of all part of the <laughs> I'm wearing glasses. So what you know is he went to the tavern in right. Marble Falls, Texas, and did what? Paul DeVoe had gone to O'Neill's Tavern and had attempted to shoot another ex-girlfriend in the head. He'd walked up to her. She was seated at the bar with some friends. Um, he pulled the gun out, made some sort of comment about you're going to die, and started pulling the trigger with no effect. Uh, the gun didn't function. Um, there was, of course, an immediate panic, um, including uh, the bartender and other patrons all started trying to get between Mr. DeVoe um, and his intended victim. And Mr. DeVoe then, you know, went to the men's room there in the bar to try to figure out what was going on with his firearm and just to kind of get away from the uh, ensuing crowd. Uh, he was able to get his gun working at that time. And when he stepped back out, uh, the first victim, Mr. Allred, I believe his name was Michael Allred. Is that correct? correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Michael uh, was a bartender at the time at O'Neill's and he had gone towards the bathroom to tell, you know, Paul he had to leave and they, they were ushering the young lady out of the bar. And when Mr. DeVoe came out, he shot Mr. Allred in the chest one time, uh, killing him instantly. Uh, Mr. Mm. DeVoe then fled the bar. Um, and let me, let me ask you one question. I mean, this is 2007, but this is Texas. I would assume that most people in the bar would be armed. I would say no, because most people, if you have an establishment that serves over 51% alcohol, you're not allowed to have a firearm. Um, okay. In Texas. Um, we have, you know, Got to protect myself sometimes. Is that correct? Well, one of the few places that you can't carry a gun in Texas. That's kind of where I, I start with Mr. DeVoe as I start to develop this uh, story. Um, and I, of course, I agree that um, we were starting to receive leads. We were talking to um, several people that knew Mr. DeVoe and they were giving us information. Kevin Robarski and I, you know, we started kind of watching uh, to see where those things would lead. And, and ultimately, they led us to a couple of places the following morning. So this is August 24th, 2007, because we are not talking about a long manhunt. Oftentimes we're talking about 45 days, 11 days. You guys did this in short order. You know, it got pretty serious pretty quickly. So the, the Mr. Allred was shot and killed on the 24th. And that's when the altercation took place with uh, Mr. DeVoe's ex-girlfriend, Sharon Wilson, um, at that same date. I didn't get to call until the 25th when um, when the marshals actually uh, agreed to adopt that. Well, tell us about the altercation that happened prior. According to Sharon, she had been at her home in Lano, Texas, with Mr. DeVoe. I guess uh, Mr. DeVoe has a history, and Craig will correct me if I'm wrong, but had a history of kind of doing odd jobs for women and then somehow becoming somewhat romantically inclined to them and would then end up living with them, um, kind of, you know, mooching off of them, for lack of a better term. 
And that is what had happened with uh, Sharon Wilson. He'd gotten to her, done some work for her, and then they kind of started this relationship. Well, she found that or believed that he might have been stealing from her, from credit cards or something along those lines. And when she confronted it on him, um, he had pulled a 380 handgun um, mm. and attempted to shoot her. She'd run from the residence as he's shooting at her. Um, and she went out to the wooded area behind her house and hit. How, do we know how many times he fired the gun? I want to say he emptied the clip. I did not go to that crime scene, but I remember that was kind of the, the theory behind why the gun didn't function at O'Neill's was because he had run the gun dry. Um, and when he put a new magazine into the gun, he did not uh, chamber around. Therefore, when he pulls the trigger at O'Neill's, it doesn't function. Mm -hmm. Craig, do you remember how many rounds that was? I don't remember total, but you're right. He, he shot up the inside of the house pretty good. As she ran out, he just kind of kept shooting and uh, just kind of filled the whole the house up with bullet holes. For those who don't know, what would a clip normally hold? Oh, I want to say like five to eight is what comes to my mind, um, you know, for a 380, um, I believe, right? 380? Right. right. Yeah. It's also kind of important to realize that when Ben gets called, it's, it's like we're constantly, um, and as we get further into this, it'll make more sense, but we're kind of constantly a step behind him. Um, from the time everything gets started. So like when the when the Lano County Sheriff's Office did that very first um, response, by the time they got there and started trying to figure out what was going on, he's already in Marble Falls where things are happening. And so it just it's like we're right right behind him all along. Right, right. And Craig, you spoke with Sharon. I, I did. What did she tell you happened? How did the argument start? It was it was over money. Um, I think Ben hit the nail on the head when he said uh, Paul just ends up mooching off people. I mean, he would meet these women and then next thing you know, he's driving their car, um, dropping them off at work so that they can get money to pay the bills. And he's just kind of goofing off at the house. And she had found out that he had been taking some money um, out of her purse. And so she was going to basically tell him we're done, you know, get out of here. And, right. and that's what started the argument. And then, uh, so clearly he he sounds like a bit of a grifter and oh, a yeah. master manipulator. Was she scared of him or she hadn't seen that side before? Or was he given to violent outbursts? What she told me was he was just the nicest guy in the world at, at the beginning. You know, and as we started uh, talking to other women in his life, he always started out uh, nice and charming, but then just started becoming abusive physically and mentally. And then it would, with every one of them, it would escalate and, uh, him putting them in the hospital um, and, and typically him going to jail, but some just never reported it. So it got to the point where she was scared of him. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, she, it, everything was fine. Yeah, well, good on her to be able to confront him. But obviously he took out a gun and she she ran into the woods. He, he sits there and, and tries to convince her to coax her to come out for almost an hour, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it was a, a significant amount of time where he's now trying to sweet talk her into coming back in and, and she just doesn't fall for it. And at that point is when he decided to, to leave the residence. And, uh, you know, I think Craig can speak to where his mindset was because I think he actually told Craig how he ended up at uh, O'Neill's bar. When he left, that's a, a pretty key part of this. When we start tracking him down is he actually steals her truck uh, when he leaves Lano and that's what he drives to uh, Marble Falls, which is, I mean, it's not far, but um, the, all these little towns are, are just kind of right around each other. And so it's it's her truck 
uh, that Dodge pickup truck that uh, ends up going to Marble Falls. And then, of course, there's witnesses that say, you know, he's in this truck. And how did he know what bar to go to? So the the almost next victim, uh, the female in the bar, is another ex-girlfriend who he had beat up on multiple occasions. And he knew that she frequented and hung out at that bar. So he was he was headed there um, without a doubt to kill her. Did he say that he had snapped? I mean, what what made this day different than all other days for him? Well, you know, he has given many stories over the years, but the one that he kind of sticks to the most is that he was bitten by a rattlesnake a couple of days before this all started. And he feels that the uh, rattlesnake venom sent him into some type of a craze. And uh, that's what started it all. That's a that's a first first for yeah. me. Yeah, it almost sounded like the Roseanne Bar Ambien makes you a racist story. But <laughs> was he intending to kill several people, or what did he think he was going to go to that bar to do? I think, for the you know, my opinion, the first one, he intended to go kill her. Um, that that one was, I'm I'm going to kill someone. I mean, like Ben described, he walked in the bar, literally walked straight to her, put the gun to her head, and lucky for her, it just didn't go off. So mm-hmm. there was there was no, hey, I'm going to talk or anything. I mean, he literally walked straight up to her and uh, tried to shoot her in the head. Wow. Yeah. I think when we get into some of his the next victims and his talk about how those things came about, if you apply that same sort of logic, I think he just felt like he he was going to be in trouble. He, this was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back with the Sharon Wilson attempted shooting. Um and he just felt like this was kind of the beginning of the end for him. So he was going to write some wrongs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what happens when he leaves the bar? We don't know. You know, he leaves the bar. We um, in law enforcement, they uh, put out a, a bolo a be on the lookout for the vehicle. Um, we get that distributed uh, so that we can, you know, people can watch that. And then, you know, from the Marshall standpoint, we start looking at, well, where would he go? You know, what, where, who does he know? Who would he visit? you know, kind of his life patterns um, in order to try to make some sort of a decision, educated guess as to where to go look for him. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Um, and that's, I think, uh, you know, Kevin and I did that all night, um, Saturday night into early Sunday morning. And then Sunday morning, we had received information, gosh, really early. Um, I think by 7 a.m. we were we were around a house in South Austin that was potentially going to be linked to Mr. DeVoe. Um, and so we we made contact at that residence to determine that that was that he wasn't there and that that was not great info. Um, and while there, we get the next break in the case, which is 
um, another agency locates the Blue Dodge Dakota. That's where uh, I really start to get involved. So it's on the 26th uh, of August that I get a call. There is a, uh, a gentleman and his daughter was visiting the daughter who lived in Jonestown and they were going to go to, I think, Fiesta, Texas. And uh, they hadn't they hadn't been able to get a hold of anybody. The daughter, the daughter's friend or the the mom that was supposed to be over everyone. And so um, they sent the police to go kind of do a check welfare over at the house. And when they get there, the Dodge truck that we know that the Bolo is out on from Lano and then connected to Marble Falls, it's sitting in front of this residence. And so the first responding officers uh, just kind of set up a perimeter because when they run the license plate on that truck, it they realize what's going on. And uh, there's fear that, you know, maybe he's inside the house or you know what. And so they called for backup in our SWAT team. And um, that's that's when uh, our homicide unit, when I got the call to to go out there and start figuring that crime scene out. So Kevin and I received a phone call from Jonestown PD um, and from our dispatch, from Travis County Dispatch, that was letting us know about the, the finding of the blue Dodge truck that DeVoe had left um, O'Neill's in. And they're kind of larger lots, um, the home that it was associated with. Um, and therefore, we weren't 100% sure that that the truck wasn't just parked here and he walked off into the woods or that there wasn't a house further down the street. Uh, so we ended up having to try to develop some sort of a correlation or some sort of a connection between DeVoe and the people that lived at this house. And when we initially started that by just figuring out who lived there, and we knew from the missing persons report that Paula Griffith was the resident, uh, the resident who lived there, and that I think we also discovered, and uh, probably important, was that Paula's boyfriend, Jay Feltner, uh, was also staying there. I think his vehicle was parked out front. So in trying to find that connection, we started speaking to people who knew DeVoe, and, and I can't recall who, but someone was able to let us know that Paul DeVoe had dated, um, and maybe it was just through law enforcement records, but we discovered that there was a connection, that it was an ex-girlfriend that he had been in a relationship with um, prior, and that gave us the ability uh, and then I will say that there was an added point that when we decided to get some eyes on, we had perimeter set up in that area. But when we actually, some, I, I don't remember if it was Kevin or who, but we were able to actually see in the sliding glass door at the rear of the residence, um, you know, what appeared to be some sort of maybe blood on the back sliding glass window. Um, and so mm-hmm. you take all of those things and, it, you know, now we think, okay, not only is he here, but we could have someone that's injured. And that gave us all the exigency we needed. Um, and while waiting for a SWAT team was probably would have been a great idea, we just didn't feel that we had that time. So we did put together a team, um, Craig, myself, a, a patrol officer, uh, Kevin Robarski was with us in the group. Um, and I want to say maybe another detective. We had met with some neighbors and they'd given us a story about possibly hearing some gunfire um, the previous night or some loud pops. Mm-hmm. They talked about how... Um, Paula normally kept a spare key under the doormat. Paula's vehicle, which was a Saturn station wagon, was uh, normally parked there and it wasn't there. So with all that information, we, we I, if I remember correctly, Craig actually we made this team. We got it to the front door and Craig was able to get the key from under the mat. Uh, we knocked and, and no one you know, responded. 
Uh, and then Craig was able to use the key, push the front door open, and we just kind of held there at the front door to see what we have. And that's when we see, you know, who ultimately is our first victim um, that we observed, which was Paula Griffith. She is lying on the floor um, with an apparent gunshot wound to the head. And that's our first moments of opening that door and realizing that uh, this is going to be terrible. And you still don't know if anyone is there in the house, if you don't know if Paul DeVoe is there, except that the car owned by the owner is not in the driveway, but you can't assume that he's not there. No, I would say that all of us making entry into that, we are expecting to find Mr. DeVoe in there. I think that as a tactic, um, you know, both on our fugitive side and on SWAT training and what have you, you have to expect to find a bad guy and be surprised when he's not there versus not expecting to find him and be surprised when he is. Right, right. So that's just a mindset that you're in when you're making entry into these places is mm-hmm. that you're expecting to find your bad guy so that you are prepared to deal with that when it comes to it. Right, right. Yeah, and you can imagine the uh, kind of the, I guess the adrenaline, the 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 fear, the anxiousness, everything when now that we've somewhat tied this house to the guy who killed somebody in Marble Falls and then by cracking the door open, um, there was a little bit of a hallway that went straight into the living room and from outside before we can go in, like Ben said, you can already see uh, Paula laying in the floor in a pool of blood. And so, you know, you can imagine that just the feelings now of, okay, we need to keep going. Where's everybody else and where is he? And that doesn't happen every day that you, that you encounter that. So this is, this is really a dramatic thing for, for you all as well to go in and, and encounter somebody who's been shot in the head and there's blood all over. Well, I know that I'll speak for myself as, as, as we make entry, I believe Craig is on point, uh, meaning he's the first in our stack. And then we have a, a patrol officer with a long rifle who's right behind him. Well, as we start to make entry through the front door, there's a stairwell immediately inside the door well going to the second floor of the house. And so Craig steps in and then we we leave the long rifle cover on the stairwell so that we can kind of cover what we have that we can see in the in the living room area through this hallway mm-hmm. and push through that rather quickly. We don't want to spend a lot of time in the hallway. Um, as we push through, I'm now right behind Craig. And as we come across, he I, I want to say he kind of covers towards the left and I go to the right. But I immediately see my second, the person I see second, another victim, which was Jay Feltner. And Jay is sitting at a four-piece kitchen table set, um, sitting in a chair, and you talk about the adrenaline, and, you know, we train for these things, et cetera, but your senses become very heightened, and I can remember seeing the blood dripping onto the floor from Mr. Feltner, um, and I couldn't hear a splash. I won't go that far. Mm-hmm. It made me feel like this might have been a lot fresher um, and so that really upped the ante on, are we going to find Mr. DeVoe in this house or not? Mm-hmm. As Ben's looking right, um, the interesting part is he sees uh, Jay Feltner first, and he's right. As soon as we got to the living room area, I kind of went left, Ben goes right. So he, so um, we got the female in the, right in the middle of the living room floor. Now to the right, Ben can see Jay. And then to the left where I turn, is where I see the first teenage uh, female victim. And each one of these is incredibly uh, bloody. Um, it's, I mean, it's very apparent as soon as we see each of them 
um, that that they they've all been shot. I mean, it's all gunshot wounds and and appears to be multiple gunshot wounds. And there is blood everywhere. I mean, everywhere mm -hmm. you look, there's blood. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So now you found three, and who knows what's what's in the rest of the house, right? So you got to keep. You so I'm gonna bring going. Kevin in because Kevin's behind us. But at this point in time, I could he could have been juggling, and I wouldn't have known what he was doing because I was very intent on my own particular job. But Kevin, give us some insight on what was happening behind Craig and I initially. At this point, it's like your stomach is just dropped because you're like, what are you getting ready to encounter in this house? Is he still in there? Is he waiting to ambush us as we're coming around somewhere because of the way that layout was? And then I think ultimately that's when we see the fourth victim. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you've got to still continue to clear that entire house every nook and cranny. So I will tell you that this happened, of course, back in 2007, and here we are in 2023, and I can still picture the pork chops that were sitting on the counter, the cold right. beers. I can still picture all of that as though it happened a week ago. So it definitely makes a mark on your mind. Right. Um, and I'll tell on Craig and I a little bit, because you're right, we do continue to clear. Um, Craig and I make our way through the dining room area, which is kind of attached to the living room, and into the kitchen where we see, you know, it looks like they were in the middle of dinner when this may have occurred, right? So now mm -hmm. we're getting some sort of a perception of time because you've got the raw food still sitting out like it was in the middle of preparation. Um, and then the kitchen, you know, as we go through the kitchen, there's no one in the kitchen, but there's a door in the kitchen leading to a small laundry room, which ultimately has a door to the garage in it. So the laundry room door is very the laundry room area is very small. And when we start to try to push the door open to, to clear what we can from the threshold, it won't open all the way. So my immediate thought is, is he behind this door? And there's not room for both of us to dump into the room. So, you know, we just, I pop in, we pull the door, I see behind it. Luckily, it is just the ominous uh, ironing board with clothes on it that is mm -hmm. behind the door preventing it from opening, which was a relief at the moment. And so having that high stress moment, now Craig is pulling in behind me and we see that the garage door is cracked open the, through the crack of the garage door. And, and, and Craig, correct me if, uh, if I mistell this, but this is certainly how it happened in my mind. We see that the garage um, attic access ladder is down or there's a ladder into the garage. Access. So I'm thinking, OK, now he might have taken and hidden inside the attic. So I look at Craig and I was, I've had about all I can handle excitement for the moment. And so we just agree that we're going to close the garage door, lock it, and we'll just hold it and let SWAT come and deal with that particular uh, right. ability. Right. Uh, so I, I remember just kind of looking at him and we just kind of unspoken. We're like, yeah, we're not going in that attic. Yeah. That's yeah. Too much of us already. And when you have as few people as you had, you can't really stop in the middle of clearing to check any of the victims to perform any life-saving maneuvers if they're required. We have to make that scene safe for us to be able to make a determination. So the first thing we have to do is make sure it's safe. And then we have EMS, we have all the other right, right. emergency medical skills that we have to bring to bear. We knew at that point, okay, there's, there's four deceased people in the living room and the dining room. So everybody we were looking for other than Paul um, is accounted for at this point. So right. it, that's when we started trying to back out um, so that SWAT could come in. And because the other, another piece to this is Ben and I had worked together 
quite a bit. But then we had a patrol officer. We had, um, I think we had a Jonestown officer. Like this wasn't a team that trained together all the time to do right. entries like this. So we're trying to just do it as right. slow and safely as we can. And then yeah. it just got to a point where it was more than our capabilities right. of just a random group of people trying to clear a house. And I'm going to say that I've observed some kind of close quarters combat. You really do need a team that trains together because people are covering each other. There's corners and one person's movement might dictate what the other person's going to do. And that's the advantage you get of having a very well-trained team that works together and how some of those things might fall through the cracks in terms of the fluid movement that leaves you more exposed if you don't have a team that trains together. Did I put that about right? Yeah, that, without a doubt, you're you're on point. And to make matters even more complicated, uh, Ben pointed out the stairwell right when you walk in. Well, stairs add a whole nother uh, mm -hmm. dynamic when it comes yeah. to tactical entries, and so it it just it just became a point that we couldn't do anymore. Right. Uh, with the, with what we had. Um, right. Right. Lot teams come in with shields and. Um, you know, all kinds of other resources to help keep them safe. So we started uh, working this crime scene. So we, we got a search warrant, which we didn't necessarily have to. Uh, but in Travis County, that was something that the DA's office wanted us to go ahead and do. So we we got waited for a search warrant. We started passing information to uh, Ben and his guys. And that's when I think we truly realized okay, we've got the truck, what is he driving? And that's where the Saturn, the white Saturn comes into play that belonged to Paula. And so we figured out pretty quickly that the white Saturn is gone. And so we gave that information to Ben. And then the other piece that I think was huge is there was uh, cell phones laying around the house, but we could not find one that belonged to Jay Feltner. And we got, got that uh, number over to Ben and turns out, uh, we learned later that that's Paul took it, mm -hmm, uh, and mm -hmm. it along the way. So that really helped them on their side while we were working the crime scene. Right. So let me just ask you. So in Travis County, you have somebody who has committed a murder the day before, then an attempted murder, and now four more murders. So what is going on in Travis County in terms of law enforcement? Is this we're bringing everybody in. We need more people from other counties. I mean, is there is there a, a panic in the public? What I mean, this is uh, certainly an unusual number of events. It was definitely uh, a, a media frenzy. And I think to make matters worse, Lano is really unpopulated uh, area. And then uh -huh. Marble Falls is a small town. And then now we're in Jonestown in Travis County, and it's another really small town. So it wasn't like the the city of Austin, Travis County vibe of, you know, two million people and it's four dead people. We're talking about a, a little town of only a couple of thousand. And so it was the talk all around the Lake Travis area, Marble Falls, Lano, Jonestown. And it, it was a big deal because a lot of people knew Paul. I mean, his, his uh, uh -huh. face was all over the media. I mean, we knew who we were looking for. Right. So, uh, you know, the tips were just coming in like crazy. And so we had detectives at our office trying to vet tips that were coming in. Um, then you had Ben and his team who were actually out looking and then all the local law enforcement around, um, you know, have all got his 
picture. We've got that uh, white uh, Saturn, all that information. Mm -hmm. So everybody's just kind of looking while we're mm -hmm. processing the crime scene. And I imagine uh, every homeowner who has a gun has got it loaded yeah, yeah. and they're out looking as well. No, of course they are. They're looking around their, their own properties and the, you know, the good and the bad about tips. And I think all my buddies here on the call will agree. You get, you start to get so many calls because right. people are like, I think I just saw that car. I think I just saw that guy you're looking for. And you know, you got to follow up on all of them and there's thousands of calls coming in because everybody wants to help. But it also made it kind of tough because we got so much help and we had to vet those. Right. Yeah. That seems to be a constant. And every time I do a fugitive manhunt, as soon as you describe what you're looking for, that's all anybody in the public actually sees. So let's now take it. I guess the marshals then pick it up after this crime scene. And we ended up uh, talking to a friend of DeBose as well as Sharon. Um, and he had actually called a friend of his, and ultimately we found out that he had called from Jay Feltner's phone, so a little cooperation to the information there. Um, and he told his friend he'd killed five people and he was getting out of town. Um, he also, if I'm not mistaken, and Darren may be able to speak to this um, if he recalls, but he also reached out to his mother and sister up in the New York area uh, and told them that he'd killed five people and, and was coming their way. Um, so that's how we started, be, you know, our fugitive search is we believe he's on the road uh, to the New York, New Jersey area uh, to see family. Um, now, his family, you know, when they spoke to him, they were like, oh, well, I'm so glad you're coming. But then they called us and they were terrified of him. And uh, they actually went into hiding um, because they were afraid he was just coming up there to, to settle little scores. Why was his family terrified of him? What had happened in their background? He was abusive to them as well. In fact, there was one instance uh, that uh, I think it was the Suffolk County uh, Police Department where he had used a telephone cord and strangled his mom years ago. Okay. So this guy's been um, really violent toward women his entire life. Right. Wow. Okay. Well, then the fear is justified. They're giving us good information. We're also, um, we're continuing to, to get information from um, Sharon Wilson. And Sharon's telling us I, they've made a trip, she and DeVoe, during uh, the better times in their relationship, they'd made a trip up to meet some of his family and friends um, in that area. And so she was giving us a list of all the people that she remembered and the addresses. I think she'd used her phone to, to uh, you know, put in a few of those addresses they were driving to. So she was providing all of those to us. Um, and that's when Darren and, and Hector uh, started reaching out with a collateral lead, which is when we send a lead to another task force um, jurisdiction with the, uh, you know, looking for help from them to start tracking him down because he might be coming into their purview. Mm -hmm. And the lead went to the New York, New Jersey Regional Fugitive Task Force. Yep. We developed information that Mr. DeVoe uh, looked like might have been heading to the Northeast. Uh, we were able to verify that information through some exigent circumstances and, and, and being able to put some pieces together. Um, and based upon like what Ben said is the family that we knew he had in the New York area. I personally reached out to Lenny DePaul up on that Northeast Fugitive Task Force up there and said, okay, here's what we got. Here's uh, the victims. Here's the vehicle. Here's some, we, we don't know exactly where he's going, but here's some family information. Um, and like you said, that's where the collateral lead came in. We sent that all to him because we were pretty about 99% sure that he had left the central Texas area and was heading that way. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so like Craig said, we were we were a couple of days behind on as far as crime scenes and, and looking for him locally. But now that was fresh and we had a, a great idea of where he was heading. Right. Um, and Chris, they also have New York, New Jersey. They also have the real Marshall money. OK, so, <laughs> you know, those regional fugitive task forces are a little bit more, uh, you know, more, more, more fatter. We're, we're kind of resist exist on a lot of lean, lean, lean funding that comes our way. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised you guys can even afford barbecue. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> so we're all kind of in a holding pattern, letting that task force do their thing and look for 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 Mr. DeVoe. And we were they'd call us every little bit and say, "Okay, we've got a little update. We've got we're doing this. We're running this lead down." I remember getting a call. They had him in a house, and they're at the door, and they're and they're speaking with him and he's holding somebody's hostage and basically has a gun to their head. Ben, is that? Yeah. So he was actually holding himself hostage. If, if I recall, um, we were on the line um, with the guys up there in New York and they, they, they made contact at the front door uh, with the friend, cousin, whoever's uh, residence it was. And, you know, he said, Hey, yeah, he's uh, in the back room. He's got a gun. Um, and so they ushered him out and they, uh, started negotiations and, and he held the gun to his own head. Um, and I remember the task force up there is, you know, kind of lays it out for him that, uh, he's just killed children in Texas. He's got a long life in uh, prison coming to him. And ultimately, you know, it was his choice what he decided to do there, but he needed to do it and, uh, put the gun down. So, they're having this conversation, this negotiations is taking place kind of live while we're on the phone with them. And then all of a sudden, you know, when he says, ah, the put down the, the gun, he's in custody. And that's kind of it. It was very anticlimactic. Uh, you know, we've been running and gunning for about three or four days straight, um, you know, talking to all these people. And then all of a sudden he's in custody. Um, and this big bad wolf that we had all these, uh, you know, concerns about encountering him or what have you. Ultimately, he offered to harm himself and then gave himself up. Mm-hmm. I will tell you, we were all very affected. You know, it was the the, it was the thrill of the hunt, the hunt was awesome. I mean, we get the call, they have him. One way or another, he's either going to be in custody in handcuffs or going to the morgue if he, you know, kills himself. Either way, we feel like we've caught this guy. Um, and then, you know, they tell us, yeah, we've got him. He's in handcuffs. We're securing the scene. I mean, and I remember... Jumping up around that that task force room, the, the squad room, high fiving, you know what a great national networking case. Sometimes our investigations take months, uh, years, mm-hmm. and, to, and to bring all these resources together in a matter of a few days to go across the country. And you know the fugitive task forces were relatively new back then, um, and for it to all work out like it's supposed to, I mean, it was awesome. I mean, it was a great, great feeling. But then the world came crashing down, and about 30 minutes, an hour later, they called back and said, hey, uh, the Saturn's not here, but there's this car here with Pennsylvania plates. And we were like, all right. So we were able to, you know, obviously, we run the plate, mm-hmm. we get an address, we find a jurisdiction that handles that address and say, hey, we call them. Uh, I think it was either state troopers or something in Pennsylvania. I don't remember. We, we told them, hey, can y'all go do a welfare check on this house? This is kind of what we got going. Um, and Ben, you probably had more details, but I remember they said, yeah, we'll check it out. 30 minutes later, they called us back and said, yeah, we've got another victim. Uh, look like, uh, Ben has more of the details, but looks like DeVoe had gone through there, killed another person on his way to New York, an innocent older lady and taken her car. So it was, was kind of like anticlimactic in that, that you find this piece. 
but then you find out he he murdered another innocent victim on his way to New York. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That certainly was our fear. You know, here's a guy who's already killed this family of four. Um, he's killed a bartender. I mean, he's clearly on a bit of a rampage. His own family is fearful of him. So we're getting all this information and we catch him and we're like, okay, good. We caught him before he did something else. Yeah. And it was the Pennsylvania state police that uh, ultimately found 81 year old uh, Betty Dehart. And she had been shot. He, he chased her into the house and uh, mm. same as all the others. Shot her. Right. Paul DeVoe, after a very short manhunt, three days, is now in custody. He's going to be extradited back to Texas. You guys want him, no doubt. Absolutely. Craig, you go up to New York? Man, I'm still at the crime scene in Jonestown as Ben runs in there and grabs me. And he's like, we're on the phone with them right now. Like they're trying to talk him out right now. But that's how quickly things are happening. We're still processing the crime scene in Jonestown while they're getting Paul in custody. And mm -hmm. so uh, we made a decision that uh, me and one of the district attorneys from here in Travis County would hop on the first flight we could get. And and so we flew straight there to uh, Suffolk County and uh, they let me they held him and let me go in and interview him. We did a, a recorded uh, interview. And then at the same time, I was typing while he was talking and he actually signed a, a handwritten confession or a typed out. Well, now we'll go into what that said, but why do you think he he gave it up so quickly? This was not somebody who cracked under a hard interrogation, right? No. Um, and I don't know that we'll ever know the answer to that. Um, he, yeah. he really didn't have any problems telling anyone. As uh, Ben said earlier, the guy that he was at the house in New York, his name was Gerard. Uh, I had it on here. But he, he had already told Gerard what he had done. He had, um, you know, he talked to the marshals that ended up picking him up. Like he he just didn't seem to have any real concern about telling everybody what he did. Is that a first? It's it's a first for me. Um, I know I've, I've interviewed a lot of homicide suspects and you usually got to kind of work them into it. Um, but no, Paul was just, he was ready to talk about it. So what, what was the first thing you said to him? How did he come clean? Well, when I introduced myself as being from Texas, um, I, it changed the whole look on his face. And I think that's when he realized, okay, this isn't just the uh, marshals or the local police up there in New York. Now all of a sudden there's a detective from Texas here. And uh, he kind of just, he broke down and started crying and Oh. I started asking, let, let's just start from the beginning. And man, he he just wouldn't shut up at that point. What did he say? Let's go back to that the night at his girlfriend's house. Yeah, he he was willing to go all the way back. And um, he told me that uh, Sharon was accusing him of stealing money. And he assured me that he didn't steal any money. And it just really pissed him off. And he admitted to drinking a lot, um, using methamphetamine. Mm. Uh, he said that he just kind of lost it with her. And he said he didn't intend to shoot her, but he did. He was trying to make a point when he shot up the house um, and um, he stole her car. Uh, well, like Ben said, he tried to call her out of the woods for a while, but she wasn't coming out. So he stole her Dodge truck. That's when he went to Marble Falls. 
And he said his intent was to kill the ex-girlfriend. And I was looking through the report. I, I don't remember her name uh, at but, Marble Ball. Right. But why? Well, why would he, why would that event with Sharon, where he said, oh, I didn't intend to shoot her, lead him to steal her car? Well, now I'm going to go kill someone else. What, think, what happened? I think his intent at that point was to kill this other woman, but he wouldn't ever tell me why he intended to kill her. Uh, uh -huh. But he did say he was, he was headed to the bar to find her uh, to kill her. And um, it just didn't work out when the gun didn't fire. And he then went on to tell me that uh, when he shot the bartender, that was an accident. He said he was trying to get the, get the gun back in battery or get a, you know, get a bullet back in the chamber and all of a sudden, Jay Feltner's right there in his face, and he kind of just raises the gun up, squeezes the trigger, and shoots him right in the chest. Wait, say that one more time. It wasn't Jay Feltner. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, That's okay. That's okay. Just say it again. Uh, what was his name, Ben? Michael Allred. There we go. So he, so Paul's in the bar, and when the gun doesn't work, to his surprise, he's trying to get it fixed. And just as he gets around in the chamber – is when the bartender uh, approaches him. And literally he said he just kind of raised the gun up and pulled the trigger and uh, it shot him right in the chest, killed him right there in the bar. And he said he knew at that point, okay, I just, I really fucked up. And so the intent from there was he ran out of the bar and headed to Paula Griffith's house. And he knew that- With what intent did he go to Paula's house? So that's what I asked. I said, so why, why do we, why are you going to Paul's house? And he said, well, because I killed the bartender by accident, I knew I was in trouble. Um, I was going to her house to try to get money. And he thought that he allegedly thought he was going to go to her house and um, borrow some money and hit the road. And right. the intent was to head to New York at that point. And usually correct me if I'm wrong, a crime of passion happens in a moment but now we're we're on to almost we're on to something completely different than a crime of passion this is a murderous rampage this is a whole different level yeah yeah but according to him he wasn't headed to her house to paula's house to kill anybody right he, he went to the bar to kill the other ex-girlfriend and i remember now she had just recently filed charges on him for assault and had a protective order and so uh -huh. he was really pissed at her. So the intent was absolutely to kill her. And then ultimately he shoots the bartender. And that's when he realizes, you know, I got to get out of town. Right. So he heads to Jonestown to Paula's house to try to get money from Paula and get on the road. Right. And he said that it was to his surprise when she let him in. And, you know, one of the questions was, was did she seem scared? And he goes, oh, no, we were we used to date. So he says that Paula just invited him in and um, he knew Paula's daughter, but he didn't realize that Jay Feltner was there. And then the other friend turns out now there's four people inside the house that he wasn't expecting. And he said they were all just kind of talking. She asked him if he wanted a beer and he said yes. And he walked uh, around through the living room over into the kitchen opened up a beer, started drinking a beer. And he said, that's when he realized I, I can't just ask her for money. I can't tell her what's going on. And so he said it, he just decided in a moment's notice, 
while he was standing there in the kitchen drinking a beer, he said he just decided to kill him. And he said he pulled the gun. He had the gun in his uh, waistband. Uh-huh. So he pulled the gun out and she immediately started running from the kitchen. And as she's kind of crossing the bar in the living room, he shoots her and hits her and she goes down in the living room. And as soon as she does that, Jay, who was at the kitchen table, starts to stand up to, to fight him or take the gun or whatever. And so that's the next shot. He turns to the right and shoots Jay who literally falls right back into the chair he was sitting in. And he's in a position with his arms outstretched and uh-huh. his head leaning back in this chair uh, there at the kitchen table. And there's other bullet holes too when we start looking. It all kind of appears that from the kitchen is where he's doing all this shooting. Mm-hmm. And straight across as Paula Griffith is running across trying to get away, he either hits her once, misses once, or hits her, it goes through. Uh, But she ends up with multiple uh, gunshots. Hi, this is Chris. After we recorded this episode, Travis County asked us to make some edits so we didn't come close to violating Texas state law. Law enforcement is very limited as to what they can discuss when it concerns minors. However, I can mention what has already appeared in the media and public court documents. There were two minors who were killed in the house that day. Paula Griffin's 15-year-old daughter, Haley Faulkner, and her friend, 17-year-old Danielle Hensley. We removed part of the crime scene description which mentioned them. I do not want to leave their names out because I thought it was disrespectful to their memory and to their families. According to a public document from the Court of Criminal Appeals of Texas, Haley Faulkner had fallen to the living room floor with a gunshot wound to the head. Danielle Hensley, who was lying on the couch, had four gunshot wounds, including a fatal wound to the head. We'll return to the episode now. Now, when he's telling you this story and he's crying, is it because he's feeling some sense of remorse or is he is he upset that he got caught? No, at, at least at that point, the game face that he's putting on is that he, it's remorse. He just said he told me that when he just snapped and decided to kill them, he didn't have any problems killing them, um, but then was crying afterwards because he was friends with. Paula's daughter and had dated Paula and he said he really liked her and he just couldn't figure out why he decided he needed to kill him. But that was his opportunity to then steal the money that was in her purse, the girl's purse, Jay's wallet. And, you know, that's when he also grabs that phone um, and takes off in her car. And I'm just trying to think about his mindset. Had he taken any meth prior to going to their house? Did that yeah, play a role? At first, he said that he had only done meth earlier in the day. But then later on, as we talked, he kind of admitted to using meth off and on just throughout that whole trip. Okay. So what effect have you found that meth has on people and their state of mind when you've dealt with people uh, during your career? It. it everybody's a little bit different, but I mean, it just, when they start using it and become these chronic users, they just, it's, it's just completely mind altering um, where these people will just start acting unlike themselves. But what we knew about Paul, even already at this point, just from research was he was a chronic since a young man, alcoholic, meth user, um, women abuser, uh, just, you know, 
just a really bad guy. Uh-huh. And I don't know if it's a way that he found to cope with it, but I saw some interview not too long ago where he said, um, I don't remember. Right. I don't remember any of that. That's by the time this all went to court, that was, that was what the story had become. And I'm, you know, I'm sure his attorneys were helping him at that point, but right. yeah, his, his story after giving the confession, um, he never, after that, it's always been, I don't remember. And I don't remember because I got snake bit. Right. And he had given a confession, not just to you, but to multiple witnesses. That's right. The Suffolk County homicide detectives, when they first brought him in, they went in to just kind of talk to him, make sure he was okay. And without even asking any questions, he started telling the Suffolk County detectives what had happened. Mm-hmm. And so of course they were writing it all down and keeping track of it all. But he right. gave them the same story uh, that he gave me. And the story was, um, it made sense because uh, you know, Ben and I had already been to the crime scene. We'd been told what happened in Lano. We'd been told what happened in Marble Falls. And we'd seen what happened in Jonestown. And so as he's describing it, like, it makes sense. Like, he's as he's talking about where he was when the shooting happened and them letting them him in the house without a fight, I mean, that was, they knew him. So there wasn't a problem. Right. So his confession, um, I'm sure you've heard it through your time of doing this, that you know, people confess to stuff they don't do sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he knew yeah. details and was able to give a confession that matched or corroborated the physical evidence that we were able to see at the various mm-hmm, times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think I think Craig's kind of selling himself short a little bit because he did such a great job in that interview of keeping those details coming. Right. Because it's easy to say, oh, I shot somebody. But it's the where were you, the why did you do it? And I think that's probably ultimately what made the biggest difference in his case was he talked about why he did these things, what his thought process. So he's having a thought process. It's not like, you know, when he's saying, oh, I'm making a decision to to steal her money. Well, now I can't ask her because her boyfriend's standing right here and that's going to be awkward. So I'm just going to rob her instead. And then I, you know, she screams and runs off and I shoot her. You know, like he's giving these details where he's thinking through why he's shooting these people and justifying it to himself, but ultimately showing it wasn't that he was out of his mind when he was doing this, he's making choices. They're terrible choices. Mm-hmm. But they're his choices. And yeah. that makes them his responsibilities, which is ultimately what the Texas jury found in three and a half hours. Right. right. And he, uh, you know, this is when he also made it a point to say, you know, he didn't, he, he left Sharon's Dodge truck at Paula's house in Jonestown. Well, he did that on purpose. I mean, he said, I, I knew I had to swap cars and that that played into killing them as well as at first I was just gonna ask for money, but now I realize, well, I'm here. I really need a different vehicle. I need the money. And so it, it just became, I guess my only choice is to right. kill everybody and right. swap vehicles to try to make it hard on us. Because even when we first got to that house, you know, we didn't hadn't really put two and two together about the white Saturn not being there. As far as we knew, it was in the garage. Right. So for, for a while, we didn't even realize what vehicle he was in. Mm-hmm. Um, but that all started piecing together as we started working. Right, together. right, right, right. Okay. And he was considered so dangerous and so high profile that they did, in fact, send a jet for you guys to bring him back home. 
when when we went back to get him, yes. But you know, going back to his interview, he he did um, talk about Pennsylvania, and uh, Ben uh-huh. mentioned this earlier. He realized in Pennsylvania that he needed to swap cars again, and he actually tried to carjack uh, two other couples before he found um, the lady at the house, oh. and it was he just just he didn't manage to get it done. And that was later reported to the police. But by that time, he now had left the highway, gone into a neighborhood, saw her sitting on the front porch and targeted her because he saw the new car in in the driveway. Oh, okay. It wasn't until Pennsylvania, you know, later, once he's caught, Pennsylvania goes over and finds her dead, then starts talking to local law enforcement. And that's when we learn about that corroborates what he had told me that he tried to carjack some other people. To right. Vehicles Which before. again leads one to believe that he knew exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it. Yeah, for sure. Because we ended up collecting that uh, Saturn, the right. white Saturn and run, doing a search warrant on it as well, because he left that at her house right. uh, when he took the uh, Hyundai Elantra. Craig, if I'm not mistaken, he had to stop and buy more ammo. Didn't he run out of ammo at one point? And so he literally stops and buys more ammo on his way toward Pennsylvania. That's right. There was uh, the receipts in the in the car where he bought more ammo. So we don't know what is, you know, how many right. more he was, he was intended on shooting. Right. And since 2009, he's been sitting on death row. Correct. And is there a date set for his execution? Unfortunately, not yet. You know, the interesting thing, I, I, when we first learned about the podcast, I did just a few Google searches. And the crazy thing to me is his picture on the TDC website, the death row page. He doesn't even look the same from what I remember. I mean, granted, we've all aged quite a bit since then, but uh, he has not aged well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't have any teeth. Um, they, they feed him blended food. They won't approve him for dentures. They just blend his food and give it to him. Um, he is still sticking to that. I don't remember story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Well, I, I mean, a job well done by everybody and, and more. So thank you very much for sharing your story. Uh, Hector Gomez, Craig Smith, Ben Wright, Darren Sarton, Kevin Robarski, Thank you very, very much for for sharing and getting this uh, piece off the street. And Kevin, one thing, uh, just because I don't know when I'm coming to town, uh, do you want to give your address on the podcast so everybody can come over for the barbecue? That way, they'll just need the date. They, you know. (laughs) Don't do it, Kevin. (laughs) I think I'll go ahead and pass on that. Everybody that needs my address knows where I live, so we're good with it. Chris, okay. I will verify to find Kevin's house. You got to go by three mailboxes, two gates, <laughs> and it, it's it's not it's not a legal address. It's a rural route, right? Well, I just have one People question. Goes, you've almost gone far enough. The only question <laughs> I have is: it worth the trip? Yes. There's only one way to find out. Looking forward to it. And now the begging and pleading portion of the podcast. If you could just take a moment to tell a friend or post about the podcast on social media, we would really appreciate it. Also, a five-star rating or a glowing review really does make a difference. We thank you for your support.
And finally, Chasing Evil is produced with the cooperation of the United States Marshal Service and contains interviews with current and retired employees as well as other persons. Opinions, positions, and views expressed by any of them may not reflect the official views, positions, or policies of the United States Marshal Service. Be safe, everyone. (laughs) 